Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Unseen Beings podcast, where we explore what it means to be human in a more than human world. I'm Eric Jampa Anderson, your host and the author of Unseen Beings How We Forgot the World is More Than Human. And in today's episode, very excited to be joined by one of my oldest and dearest friends, Anna Reithel. Uh, I first met Anna at Taramandala, a Tibetan Buddhist retreat center in southwest Colorado, where we were both summer volunteers long ago. Uh, she went on to live and work at Taramandala for many years, managing the temple, coordinating ceremonies, and doing a million other things. Uh, Anna trained in ritual arts under Kempo Urgin Wangchuk and a number of other senior lamas and ritual specialists. She now serves as Taramandala's head chupin, or ritual master, leading rituals and teaching the wider community how to hold the form realm of practice. Anna also works as an emotional intelligence coach, working with clients and organizations to develop mindfulness and self-awareness. Welcome, Anna. It's so wonderful to have you here. This is so exciting. Thank you, Eric. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to be a part of the Unseen Beings momentum putting going out into the world. Oh, yeah. You're a, a very welcome part of the family. <laughs> this is a very, um, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Um, we were just talking about this. We had a, a nice long catch up before <laughs> actually recording this. Uh, but for those that, that know me and some of my work, I, I also spent a lot of years at Taramandala and, and especially training in ritual arts. Uh, and Anna's really one of the very few people uh, who kind of knows that world in the same way, uh, in precisely the same way, because we did a lot of our training together and we, we worked on a lot of um, retreats and, and ceremonies together. Uh, even just this, uh, this Drup Chen, which is a big ritual that we've both done a, a lot of, I think around you know a dozen each. Um, and it's one of those things where it's so difficult to try to express to literally anyone just the breadth of what's actually involved in it. You know, you can say, oh, it's this like, you know, 10 day ceremony or this like Buddhist, uh, you know, retreat or something. Uh, but unless you have a frame of reference for it, it's really impossible for folks to understand what that means. They might think like, oh, you're like, you know, meditating for 10 days. And it's like, no, 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 no that's that's not it. <laughs> it's precisely not like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm thrilled to, to have you here to hear some of your thoughts on, on ritual and embodiment uh, and just to, to chat a bit about, you know, this experience, which is quite unusual, I think, for a lot of folks. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, gosh, my my pleasure. And yes, it, it is hard to describe because you were, were doing this you know, very traditional Tibetan Buddhist you know, ritual art form. And we're doing it in a very, um, you know, usually in very beautiful Tibetan places, you know, be it a temple or a, a space that we've uh, transformed to become a little more shrine-like um, or our, our home even. Um, but then like, you know, but we're Westerners doing this. And so that, that's always an interesting edge, I feel, of, um, you know, doing these activities that are are, are very traditional and uh, have a lot of, uh, you know, history and, uh, and, and form behind them. But then we're doing it, uh, you know, as Westerners, you know, sometimes in our houses, like, or in temples in the West. And um, I don't think I've ever actually, I'm wondering, I wonder if this is true. I don't think I've ever actually chippened outside of the U.S. So I don't think I've never, oh, um, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to, ch maybe there must have been like some practices that we did on pilgrimage. Actually, now that I say that, um, you know, there are, Lama Sultram does a lot of uh, spontaneous roadside uh, ritual <laughs> happens oh, yeah. happens a lot if you go on the road with Lama Soldrum. So now that I say that, I bet I, I have done quite a bit in Asia. 
but not in a formal temple and, and not in a formal yeah. setting. Um, so I, yeah, for me, it's a very, yeah, like lived, lived experience. Um, yeah. And, uh, you were just mentioning the droop chens and yeah, that's when we, we really kind of go in together and <laughs> we are, and we are not meditating. <laughs> no, 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 no. There isn't a lot of that going on. <laughs> there is, uh, as, yeah, as, as uh, Eric just said, you know, that the chipin is the activity master or the, uh, you know, the activity specialist and that is wildly true where it is, it is a very uh it's an active process and there's a lot goes on behind the scenes um a lot of preparation for rituals and ceremonies uh, a lot of creations uh, i call it like uh, dharma arts and crafts sometimes because oh, yeah like, you're making these things out of clay or how do i make these six sticks fit in a perfect shape that is that will hold until tomorrow <laughs> and um you know lots lots of uh Lots of activity. It, yeah, activity definitely defines the Chupin experience for sure. <laughs> and, and and it was always fun to have good people, good people in there with me. And that that really makes it fun. Chippening is also very much a team activity. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's sometimes, you know, it's it's months of preparation. You know, I remember my first summer volunteering at Taramandala. I had been sort of peripherally involved for a few years at that point. But I think that was your second summer volunteering, uh, the 2009 year when we did the first <clears throat> so that, karma. That, that was my third that was my third summer volunteering oh, third. actually yeah yeah uh, so i mean that was that was a crazy that was a crazy year i i remember you know it was months and months ahead of time that we started preparing for this big ceremony and you know i had never done anything like that before uh i'm not sure if you had done the the previous troop chen with odds and Rinpoche. Oh, no, I had it. That was my first no. one also. So, 2009. I mean, you know, we're coming into this quite fresh. I remember, you know, like I was working for, for Julia at the time and th that was her first Droop Chen as well. And it was just full on sort of 24 seven preparation for months. You know, we were learning dances. We were learning instruments, multiple different instruments, learning a million melodies and different, you know, sort of ritual procedures, learning how to make tormas, learning how to build the mandala, learning how to, you know, accumulate all these offerings, figuring out how we were going to do five simultaneous <laughs> fire <pages. Yeah. laughs> Which are still legendary, still legendary. Still legendary. <laughs> I, we've never done oh, that since. That was a Julia, one time. Julia Jean figure that out and we, we still follow yeah. her model when we have to yeah. do simultaneous fire pooches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's a, you know, it was an incredible experience and, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation with you because, you know, we sort of ended up holding sort of different ends of the, the ritual arts spectrum. You know, you've, you've specialized in both. I mean, you trained in both and you've done both a lot, um, but you've sort of specialized in the chip inside of things, which is this, very active you know the chippen is the person that's actually doing all of the stuff with the shrine and you know the different offerings that need to be made uh all of the different substances have to be prepared in very specific ways and then they have to get to the right person at the right time it's all very complex and then i was holding sort of the umze stuff which is more of the you know um leading the the actual ceremony vocally and with the instruments playing different forms of cymbals and the the drums and leading the sort of tantric orchestra and <laughs> You know, together, this this is really what creates the the ritual ambiance, which becomes quite a magical thing. It's really unlike yeah. anything else I've experienced in any other context. And I, I want to start just by, you know, sort of, I think it'll be interesting for folks to know, you know, how you got into this in the first place. 
both, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, but also specifically, what is it about ritual arts that really drew you in um, initially? We can start there. Ooh, what a question. It was a, let's see, I, I first went to Tarmandal when I was 20, now 37. So it's been 17 years of, of really answering that question. And and I feel like I'm, I'm, I will hope I will always be learning. And I still feel like a baby sometimes in this work. But then I realized that I, I know things that I can teach to other people that are helpful and that sometimes something spontaneous will happen and I'll, I don't know how to solve the problem or I'll know what to do next. And I realized like, oh, actually, I know quite a bit about this. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there's not there's not many. I've wondered about this. There's not many Chupins in the West. Yeah, I'd yeah. say. And, and probably yeah. not many who have who have deeply specialized and who um, you know can hold Drup Chen and empowerment and um you'll really hold this work uh yeah. in the way that we do and uh, even in saying that i'm like oh i'm not sure i'm one of those people like i am still learning <laughs> <laughs> you definitely are but the, but then i but then i realized that i i do know something um and and it is very much um a role that is held in partnership with with the llama with the umze um, you know and that you know we co-create this world together uh and that's that's also a never-ending process Oh yeah, but thinking back to 2009, and you, you were just describing all of these preparations, and I don't think we had any idea. Well, how could we have had any idea of what it was <laughs> rolling up to? <laughs> you know, we didn't know. You know, we're practicing instruments, learning dances, preparing formas, getting the shrine room ready. None of us, I think, at Taramandala at the time, you know, knew what <laughs> this was all going to be like in the end. And uh, I think that first year was pretty overwhelming, which which in some way is is the point of, of having so much ritual, I think, and so much um, happening in the form and sound realm it is is to completely occupy your senses and yeah. to get you out of uh, your more you know, mundane or, um, you know, kind of ingrained ways of thinking. It, it kind of blasts you open and, and then and then you see what happens next. Um, but I definitely felt pretty blasted open in 2009. <laughs> but but it was also it was so inspiring. You know, it's it's so it's so beautiful, and I, I I was really entranced by what I saw. And that very first Jupiter, I didn't have a role. I think um, I think I just was helping. You know, I was running the Tarmondo facilities and the volunteer program at the time. Uh, yeah, so right. so my main job was really just allocating teams and like. <laughs> Put, you know, putting volunteers in different roles. Um, so, so for me too, it was really watching it for the first time. Um, and then the next year in 2010, um, well, I spent a year then learning with Kempo Ergen um, about ritual arts and he was living at Tar Mandala at the time, which was, uh, I, maybe that's a short story with a lot of this is, you know, right time, right place. <laughs> like I was, I was there. Uh, I was there and able to learn from Kempo Ergen and, and I was young. Uh, so I, I had nothing I had no kind of other agenda or um, <laughs> I, I wasn't, I was living at Taramandala and there was this amazing Kempo from Bhutan coming to teach us ritual arts. So I just spent as much time with him as I could. And and the winters are long at Taramandala. They're, they are long and quiet and they lend themselves oh. well to study and practice. <laughs> so yeah. so that, that's what I did. Uh, so I was studying Jawling with him, um, which is the Tibetan, it's a Tibetan instrument that sounds like a, like an oboe almost, or like a clarinet. Um, that involves circular breathing. So I learned how to circular breathe uh, from Kaburigian. Um, So then I played Jaling in the second Jupchen, and that's then I kind of had a front row seat to all of the Chupin activity. 
and then and that's where I think I began to understand these roles in a different way of you know by getting to hold a musical instrument and there's only two jollings in the whole assembly um and the jolling has this very you know lyrical um, melodious sound so it, it really stands out also in a um and I began to see how like form and sound crafted the experience for people and and yeah and in Egyptian specifically there's you know you're calling in all of these you know deities in, in our Egyptian so Karma specifically you're calling in the five dakinis and you do that through music and through offerings and through mantra recitation and that that's where I began to get this felt experience of you know what does it mean to fully occupy your senses in a way to to, to be in in relationship with these practices that we're doing and and to and to embody the deity you know what what is it it's a very abstract concept in some ways to embody a deity but then you know how do you do that through form how do you do that through sound through visualization through through study and practice and you know having a sense of what you're doing as we chant these lines in tibetan a language that is not our own that we tend to not understand unless you study tibetan and do do understand um yeah and then yeah so it was really from there that i just began to learn little things um julia jean was uh, on site at the time and yeah. i watched her and she had a lot of ritual training from uh, previous lineages and work she had done and and there's still i i always reference her as, as someone who really showed me what it meant to hold these these things in this way yeah. and um, you know, she was my first example, and and many of the ways we do things at Tara Mandala originated with her. Like oh, she, yeah. she yeah, like yeah. created that momentum, and that momentum is still going, even though many people have have been in that pipeline sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Ani Pema was living on the land at the time, and she she knew um, a lot from other um, from having been a chupin for other mamas also. Um, and actually, that this is maybe a, a roundabout way to say. Uh, I think I really stepped into the ritual space when Dave Petit died. So I was living on the land when Mama Sultan's husband died. Um, you know, we we did his cremation. I was 23 at the time, so I was I was still young, and you know, run my job was running the volunteer program at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lama Lama Sultan went on her grief pilgrimage, uh, and uh, she invited me almost as a like. It was a very casual, like, oh, I wish you could come visit me. And I said, like, I'll fly to India to come be with you. <laughs> like, is that real? Like, is that like a, it's like, not oh, yeah, yeah, but it's like, is that like, is this a real invite? Because I'll do it. She was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah come. And so I, I flew to India and, and spent six weeks with Lama on her grief pilgrimage. And then it was, it was really through that of, you know, being close to, to the Lama and, um, and supporting her, her retreats that she was doing. So on her grief pilgrimage, she would do these, um, kind of practice periods or she like go into retreat for like a few weeks or a month. And then, yeah, then she'd travel a little bit and go into retreat again. And so I would support her, um, in these retreat periods and she would, she would need things, you know, she would need like candles and, you know, torma things and, um, you know, help doing the activities and, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was really just there helping her. And and that was fun. That was a, it was a way to um, process my own grief around Dave Petit dying because he was, he was a good friend and I spent a fair amount of time with him. And, and it, and it was, it was interesting. I, I liked it. Um, I, I liked 
learning what all these different items were and um, you know what are these things on the shrine and like how you know how do they get made? You know, people are doing this by hand. Like what? Like it just again, you know, it just mm-hmm. kind of turned my mind into oh, this is this. There, there's something here. Uh, yeah, and then and then Mama was gone for I think over a year. You know, maybe a year and a half. And so I, I traveled with her for those six weeks. And when I got back to the land, um, you know, Tower Mandala was obviously in a little bit of uh, disarray. Like, you know, one of the founders had died. Uh, Lama Sultram was gone on her grief pilgrimage. Um, you know, Katie Alioni and Tuko Osel were really holding the fort. You know, they were, you know, they came and um, were really running Tower Mandala for those years. Uh, and, and so I just started doing things. I just started um, learning how to hold practice. Um, you know, learning how to, you know, Kempo Ergin was there still. He lived on the land for three years. So I, I learned a lot from him those three years and uh, started leaning in more to his his teaching. And he's also a very vigorous teacher and he will teach you until it is correct. <laughs> and, <laughs> and until it is correct, you are learning. <laughs> and, and there's, and there's um, yeah, there's, there's a great precision in just in his method. Uh, and and he he works with you until you have it right, and until it is right, you are practicing. <laughs> so, and yeah, it, it was really just this cumulative process um, of of learning, you know, bits bits and bits over time. Uh, and then I I became Char Mandala's uh, temple manager, and so then then I was really in it, and you know, doing all the ordering, and you know, really organizing the temple, and um, you know, taking care of all of these things, not just in practice, but really caring for the whole the whole temple um i was also traveling with lama continuously during that time um and and again a lot of this was learned on the fly like uh, you know I, I did have some formal training actually a good amount of formal training with Kempo again but so much of this is like we're offering this empowerment you know we need to prepare these things and here's the text and you know we just go and do it and um, I, I spent many rituals being very anxious because <laughs> I'm, I'm someone who likes to get things right. See, I like I like to you know do my work well and um, try to be as as excellent as I can make something happen. Um, and there's a lot of anxiety of like I don't know what I'm doing. Like how do I like? There's no instruction. There's no instruction manual with this at all. <laughs> and a lot of it was you know really learning as I went. And then, and that, that's really my story with becoming Charmandala's head chippen is is learning through these small experiences, um, working with other chippens, uh, the like Riggs and Ling and the, the Chajid Gompa um, consortium has a, a lot of very excellent chippens, and they they would come to Charmandala and work with us. Um, I went to Riggs and Ling and learned. I, then it was interesting to learn a different way. It's still droop chant. It's still. Um, very similar, same kind of root text of the, the knowing one text that we use to do droop chens, um, similar that they, that, as what they do at Riggs and Ling. And so then seeing what like, what these practices look like in a very different gompa and a different sangha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then and then shipping for different lamas and rinpoches as they either came through Char Mandala or if Lama Sultram was working with them um, or teaching in their centers. And so it, it, that's really the whole story. It became this very co-creative process. I'm I'm still on that learning journey. Mm. Um, you know, two months ago we cremated Lama Wangdu at Tara Mandala, and that that was a brand new experience that I, I've, I've done different cremations. You know, Dave Petit's cremation, um, another Sangha member at Tara Mandala who died, and then Lama Wangdu's was the third one. 
but I had never done a cremation for a high llama that was that was so so elaborate and so traditional. So I'm I'm still on that journey, and and now I I do feel like I have enough of a baseline of knowledge and experience to to begin sharing it with other people, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, both both instructing Taramandala residents and sanghas about you know how to hold our, our main practices and how to, you know, hold their home shrines and, and do like the daily practices like, you know, protectors or soak. Um, so I'm, I, I serve as that resource in our Taramandala Sangha. Um, and I'm very much still learning. I, I learn and I share, and that is my, hmm. my Chupin approach. Yeah, it's lovely. It is. It, I mean, it's one of those things where it is such a specialized form of knowledge that I mean, I, I feel very grateful for having had the the ability to learn as much as I have, um, because it's it's just such a rare opportunity to really get that from from you know such incredible teachers like Kempo again. You know, he yeah. was really he was so profoundly generous with his time and his expertise. And I think a lot of folks, you know, are drawn to to ritual arts. You know, we find it interesting, I think, innately as human beings, you know, especially when you're bringing in all of these components, you know, of music and, you know, song and dance. And, and like you said, you know, arts and crafts, these are are, are phenomena that we relate to in such a, a sort of primal way as humans you know I'm, I'm struck by like you know joseph campbell's statement that you know ritual is the enactment of a myth and it's really mm. a, it's a kind of method of of stepping directly into a kind of mythic experience of reality that goes beyond just imagining because <clears throat> of course you know we do all of these uh you know in in tibetan buddhism there's all these practices that are done uh, that involve a lot of visualization and sort of imagining certain things. But then when you can create it in a ritual environment, it doesn't take so much visualization. It doesn't take so much imagination. You're really bringing it to life. And especially when you're in one of these sorts of positions as a chupin or as an umze, or even as a, a ritual dancer or a, an instrument player or something like that, you are a part of it. You know, it's it's a bit like a production, you know, like a... a a theater show, a musical or something like that, but one in which there is no audience, you know, yeah. everyone is in the production and sort of creating it. And it's, it's just, it's such a, a marvelous experience that I think is something that humans are naturally inclined towards. It enchants us. It gives it, it gives us that sort of, again, what Joseph Campbell would call the, um, the rapture of being alive. And, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's a, a phenomenal thing to do and to be able to specialize in and to be able to to carry on for sort of future generations of practitioners uh, and also to help folks sort of ground it in in their real lived experience. So it doesn't just end up being something where we're just obsessed with doing things in a certain way and it's all about doing, you know, following certain forms. Uh, and it's really about integrating and becoming more embodied. Uh, and that's something that you you focus a lot on when you teach ritual arts. Can you speak a little bit to that aspect of ritual as like the, you know, an embodied practice, a practice of embodiment? Ah, thank you for that question. Because I was listening to you talk, I was like, that's what I wanted to say next. <laughs> <laughs> and so, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I I was... Um... That's like that's the feeling that came up of like of like why like why why do we do this like why is ritual important mm-hmm. and you know and it's found everywhere it's not you know obviously Tibetan Buddhism yeah. does not have the lock on religion uh, on ritual <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and yeah, in, in my experience, it's yeah, like like why do we do this? And it and it's to me, ritual creates like a, a rhythm. It's it's a way of like focusing our senses and settling into a rhythm, so that our minds can find calmness and clarity, and then that creates room for something else to arise. You know, what if that's a moment of insight? If if even if it's just a good practice session. Um, and then with the, the goal of enlightenment and alleviating the suffering of beings of, of what we're what we as Tibetan Buddhists are wrapping up towards. But yeah, but, the, but to me, that's how those two things connect. Okay, if we have to, as Tibetan Buddhists are you know running around practicing all these ritual things, like why? Like why are we doing this? Hmm. But again, it's it's a way to me of of engaging the physical realm of like what do we do with our bodies in this space? Because it is it is so the the tradition is so rich. You know the um, the practices are very, you know, rich and descriptive. Um, you know, the visualizations are very complex. You know, we set these, you know, very, you know, very ambitious goals of enlightenment and liberating all beings. If if you take bodhisattva vows, and it's it's like, oh my god, like how do I, like how do I do that? <laughs> and and I think we we do that by starting with ourselves. Like, yeah, you know, how is my body occupying this space? You know, what activities am I engaging in? Um, in that in that in that very form based realm, I think we use ritual to find calm and spaciousness, actually. And that's on the of course we know that on the other side of of form is is no form and space and mm. um, that kind of potency of um, you know, spontaneous arising. And, and, and we do this in our lives. Like, you know, we engage in ritual all, all the time. You know, like, what is your, what is your wake up routine? You know, what is your going to bed routine? Um, you know, how do you organize your week? Um, you know, how do you organize your grocery list to go to the store? Uh, mm. you, you know, holidays, you know, like what, what are our, you know, holiday traditions? Yeah. You know, that like we, I think we as humans really love, we love this. We love ritual. We love knowing what's coming next. We love, mm. Um, we love settling into something that's a little familiar and and consistent, and and so we very naturally create rituals for ourselves all the time. I think I, anyone can think of like, oh yeah, like I, I do the same five things when I get up in the morning. Um, or if you don't, maybe you're someone who who has you know if you have five kids and the morning is very chaotic, um, you know maybe that's not what you're able to do. Um, but I, I think we look for ways to find to find rhythm. And, and ritual is one of the ways we do that. And then specifically in Tibetan Buddhism, it it is all of this, all of these sense things are are really made to occupy, you know, our mind, our speech, our form, um, you know, our interactions with other people, you know, our conduct, you know, the, the list is endless. And yeah, and that and that's what that's what we're doing. Um, and and I, I think there is. There are, of course, ties that feel important to me that, um, like the the preservation of the tradition that we are able to do this in the West very freely, um, in a way that's very challenging in Tibet, um, and but here we can do it freely, and and many of those masters are here in the West, and we can learn from them, and I, I do think that is an important aspect too of of, pres- of being able to preserve the, tr- the tradition without persecution. And and we have that um, responsibility, I think, to to try and and maintain these traditions 
and and to make them relevant and current and to understand why you know why are we doing this you know mm-hmm. if i if i build this structure out of dough and i cover it in wax and i say these things and i throw it on the hillside you know what what am i doing here right. <laughs> and, and i think yeah. it's it's important to understand that and and yeah. i found um again my levels of understanding continually deepen you know i i thought i knew what i was doing when i was 25 and yeah. now i realize yeah. At 37, like, oh, like now I understand really <laughs> yeah. what's going on here. And I'm sure in another increment of time, I'll, I'll look back to this point and be like, oh, you didn't know, like you were so young. <laughs> and yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah what, what do you, what do you think about that? I'm curious because you, you are also a chippin, you know, like, like you said, you know, we, we occupy, um, you know, I occupied more of the form realm, you occupied more of the sound realm, but you, mm. you do a lot of this work too. I mean, I, I really like what you were saying. I find I find the concept of ritual to be really interesting. There's a scholar, I think his name is Adam Seligman. I hope that's correct. He wrote a, a paper about ritual as the sort of subjunctive tense of engagement, the sort of like the what if. It's a sort of a process of like creating an environment in which a certain set of rules for existence and sort of rules of engagement you just take it as a given truth within the context of the ritual and it sort of doesn't matter if it's true or not in an absolute sense you create an environment where everyone is acting as if it is true Mm -hmm. and it creates this kind of magic that i think is really the foundation of a lot of elements of, of being human like you said we have rituals for many things even like you know if I were to, you know, ask someone like, can you please do this for me? That's a kind of ritual. It's not, ge- it's not a genuine request of, can you do this? And then they respond genuinely if they can or cannot. It's an implicit sort of assumption that like, we're playing the game. I'm playing the please can you or the would you mind that game. And then the other person says, yes, of course, playing by the same rules. And it's sort of that's how things, you know, sort of progress. And that's how we engage in this thing called culture. The yeah, please it, and thank you rituals, you know, yeah, those it, are, it are very... Oh, sorry, I'm interrupting you. But, no, 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 but, it, but yeah, it, yeah it, it creates a basis for shared experience. Yeah, It creates absolutely. a basis for relationship. Absolutely. And I, I mean, the relationship thing is something that I really want to I want to come back to in a second, because I think that's a really important element. But another thing that I really liked is the and you, you talk about this in other places as well, the sort of the, the sanctity of the mundane, you know, making common things a, a sort of elevated and, and sacred. Uh, it reminds me of something that Tolkien wrote about sort of the purpose of fairy story and myth. One of the, his goals, especially in his work that I think he does phenomenally well, is the ennoblement of simple things. Uh, you know, the magic that you find in works like Lord of the Rings, but this is often the case in a lot of mythic literature or a lot of good fantasy. The, the magic doesn't come from the fantastical things that are completely otherworldly and, you know, people shooting lightning bolts out of their stabs or whatever. The magic comes from just looking at the conventional world in a slightly different way, you yeah. know, to the point where a, a fire or a, a loaf of bread or a, a mug of ale or a sword or a tree becomes something remarkable becomes something fantastic it becomes something amazing and i think that that's something that can happen through myth um and we can you know shed a light on things in such a way through myth and storytelling but in ritual that's another method of really allowing sometimes very mundane normal activities to become something supernatural or you know i don't like the word supernatural but um but like like larger than 
larger than. It, it becomes something enchanting. It allows us to become enchanted by the world, uh, which is also, I think, a, another element of it. Um, and I want to hear your thoughts on all of this, but another element of it is the fact that this is taking place in the the sort of material, do, you know, dimension. And of course, within religious traditions of all kinds, there's always sort of expectations about what's really going on in the sort of energetic sphere and so on. But especially when we're talking about these sorts of rituals, it's happening right there. And for me, I think that's a really important piece of grounding our our spiritual practice in a sort of pragmatism and an experience of the living world. It's getting things out of the ether a little bit and and into our actual bodies and the worlds that we inhabit, allowing that to become the domain of magic, as opposed to forcing it into the like psychical dimension of, of, you know, energy and and those sorts of things. It's so much more grounded. It's it's more, you know, um, yeah, tangible and, and visceral. Absolutely. Like, and it was really, really the ritual arts were my pathway into understanding Tibetan Buddhism more deeply. Because mm. again, to me, ritual means that you, you get to be in relationship with these things you're doing. You know, they are not only theoretical, abstract concepts that like, you know, if I, if I say this and visualize this, this, you know, this will happen, but you get to actually do it also. And that you get to be in relationship with whatever it is like you know your own circadian rhythm or um the the beings you know the, the land beings that are described in tibetan buddhist texts or i don't know as much about fairy culture and history but but that you you get to be in relationship yourself with these things and and with your own world like you you get to you do it like it is it is a a felt and lived experience of of your very present current reality it, yeah. it's it's not only a a thing that's happening, you know, visually and abstractly. It is here, and yeah. it is and it is in transforming that mundane into something more sacred. And whatever context that means for you, I, mean, I think I think sacredness is um, is a, I, I consider sacredness to be a very wide, a very wide aperture. Even even just this past week, I was in Montana. Um, we were out in the snow and. Like the air was, you know, like, you know, it's this dry, powdery snow and, you know, it was blowing in the wind and like, and then the sunlight was catching it. And like, you look at it and you're like, the air is sparkling. Like, yeah. it's so beautiful. And, and I, yeah, I, I don't know if it's like my ritual training that, you know, makes me notice things like that, but mm-hmm. it, it's a way I, I do think because of my my ritual arts background, I, I look for that magic and I, I kind of expect that magic in the world a little bit. Mm. And then I get to be in relationship to it. And then I get to live this, you know, kind of beautiful, enchanted, <laughs> you know, mythical world because I've I've studied and practiced these things in a in a very specific way. And so again, it, it's why it's why I love this practice. It's why I spend so much time uh, learning these things and teaching them. Because I think it teaches us how to engage in the world in a different way that is a little more subtle, a little more perceptive, and, and yeah, just a little more magical. And that's mm. that's the world I I want to live in. Yeah. And, and again, and then it starts like in the felt bodily experience. It's it's not that like I am you know I am mundane and all of the beauty and magic is out here, and and I can't access it, or you know I need a priest to access it, or I need um, you know some kind of you know, intermediary 
like, no, like this, that my, my felt lived experience can also be magical. And mm. um, that, I, yeah, I, I know I keep saying this, but that, that was my pathway into Buddhism in a large way. It was, I, I was young. Um, yeah, I found, I, I really, when I was, I was 17, when I started um, paying attention to Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism and this whole world. And then I, I came to Tarmandal when I was 20 and moved there when I was 22. And, and it, but it was through this path of ritual arts that, that things became very real to me. Um, you know, of course in, in Tibetan Buddhism, we talk a lot about spiritual bypassing and, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, yeah. You laugh because it's, it's so like, this is the kind of thing that we're up against as Westerners with our, you know, coming from a very different cultural, you know, psychological you know, background as Westerners, you know, we're, it's, it's very easy to, you know, jump out and, and yeah. get, and spend all this time in, um, you know, pure realms and imagining ourselves as deities and, you know, saying these mantras. And, and I think all of that is very beautiful and good. And um, that, that's, that's what we do as, as Tibetan Buddhists. Um, and, and like, we're, we're people, like, we, we still have to be people on that journey, too. Yeah. And and so the, the ritual practices were the path of embodiment for me of, of making these things that we're saying and imagining very real and lived and felt mm-hmm. and and then so much more vibrant be, because of yeah. that. You know, these practices became very alive and I, I began to really understand them in a different way and understand them as a lived path, you know, not just as a thing I do. Like when I sit down on my cushion, I'm going to go be green Tara for an hour yeah. and then and then go back to myself. It, right. It's like no, like I get I get to carry that energy with me throughout the day, be, be, and again, I think many people many people find their way to this. I, I don't think ritual arts is the only way to find embodiment in Tibetan Buddhism. This this is just my my journey, um, but being being young and and not having a lot of context outside of what I was seeing and experiencing, that that's how it became real and how I was able to like un- understand practice. You know, just just understand my personal practice in a in a what felt to me to be a a deeper way. Hmm. I I think there's I mean there's so much there that I think there's a really significant profundity in allowing our material embodied physical existence to be suffused with enchantment and wonder and meaning. And I think that that's something that, you know, you mentioned spiritual bypassing. There's also, of course, all these conversations about, you know, spiritual materialism and a critique of materialism of um, more fundamentally. And it's interesting because there's this whole movement, which I feel quite aligned to, um, which, you know, goes by many names, sometimes new materialism, which is really criticizing this tendency that we've had for a really long time in a lot of different traditions uh, to create this sort of split, this perceived split, especially transcendent religious traditions, of which Buddhism certainly is one, mm-hmm. um, where there's a sort of split between the physical material world, you know, the earth, which is usually base. It's usually something that is you know, the the, loca- the the location of suffering and these terrible things that we want to sort of get away from. And then sanctity and spirituality and profundity is somewhere else. As, as other. Place. Yeah, precisely. And all even just the basic sort of Cartesian mind-body split, this idea that, you know, our mind is not, so, it's not our body, it's something other than the body. And I find ritual 
I mean, the new materials, new materialist sort of perspective is is that that's not really the case. We can't actually completely separate mind from body. We can't separate meaning from the the physical sort of matter of the world. There, you know, finding enchantment in the material world is actually a far more primordial kind of human experience. It's far more animistic, you know, fundamentally, mm-hmm. be able to recognize that, you know, like a tree spirit isn't necessarily a spirit that lives in a tree. It may in fact just be the spirited nature of the tree themselves, the the person, the subjective being that is embodied in that physical, you know, structure that we think is this sort of, you know, just object, but perhaps it's a person. And that's a more sort of new materialist perspective. Uh, but I think ritual is a really excellent way of of breaking through some of that sort of duality, that binarization of of matter and mind and of, you know, the profane and the magical. Uh, and I, yeah, I think that's a, a great benefit of ritual, especially in the ways that it's practiced in these traditions, because it, it is so profoundly embodied uh, and the real world becomes magical. It becomes enchanting. There's a, a specific genre of practice, um, unless you have anything that you want to say about that. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just recognizing, I think I'd like to offer, well, I just thought of this, like a very, uh, my, an example from my my own life, because I, I think even even though we're talking about, you know, ritual as felt experience, or in this conversation, we're being fairly abstract with it, ironically. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. and I, I just want to offer this story, but I'm looking at my window at this this tree and um, when you were talking about you know whether or not you believe does a spirit inhabit that tree or is it like the spirit of just of the tree you know just the quality right. that it emanates and and so I'm, I'm thinking of this because of like you know how like how it is how do i use all this you know formal ritual training in my own just in my day-to-day life and yeah. uh when i moved to this apartment in portland oregon um i, I was leaving a lot i just left three year uh three year three months <laughs> retreat um I was I was really leaving. I had left Tarmandala, but I but I had gone back and forth for a year, and, and this was my like I'm now moving to Portland to like live here and start a job. And um, I just mm-hmm. left three months of retreat. Um, I just broken up with my partner at the time. Um, I was I was incredibly ungrounded, <laughs> and and just kind of moving to the city where I didn't know anyone to start this job. Um, and I was, I was just so out of myself, like very disassociated, very, very sad, um, you know, grieving a lot of what I'd left behind, but, you know, excited for the future. Um, and I was, I was talking to a friend, uh, Gayla Morrison, who I think many, mm-hmm. many people know in the Tarmandala Sangha. And, and I, I was telling her all of this. And, and then I said, you know, and Portland's a little desolate in the winter. You know, it's, it's dark, it's rainy. <laughs> it's, it's all, it can, winter is a thing here. And, um, and I was telling her, yeah, like this, and I, you know, my apartment was strange. I still live here now, six years later, but (laughs) at the time, um, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't settle into my own life. Like I I was very literally and figuratively upset. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was telling Gayla about this tree in the backyard. Oh, like everything feels wrong, but there's this tree and I, like, I, I love it. It's like this tree just like makes me feel good. And if you know Gayla, you know that she is all in <laughs> understanding um, spirits and the, the geomancy of land and you know, that this is her thing. Um, and she said, go, go to that tree. Like, you know, make, make offerings to that tree, you know, put things that you love around that tree. You'll bring a piece of it into your home. You know, it was winter. So I, I think I just took some like I don't know, I think dirt from the ground. 
<laughs> and and yeah, you know, there were no leaves. <laughs> and I didn't want to like break off a part of the tree. <laughs> I was like, thank you, thank you, tree, for being here. And and that that was how I I started to like feel okay. And and of course, feeling okay was a long process. But it was it was through like having that relationship with something in the the natural world near me. And I was living in, in an apartment in Portland, you know, basically living in a city, you know, it was not, um, I, I, and I was working full time. You know, I didn't have a lot of time and space to go, you know, sit in the woods and find myself. Um, I had to do it on the fly and, and through this, you know, very beautiful, inspiring friend uh, who, who reminded me, and this, and this is why we need each other. <laughs> you know, we, we need each other to remind us of, of the work that we're here to do. Um, but I was able to to be in relationship with this tree and to th- through making offerings and and through this exchange, which was completely organic. You know, I think I was mm-hmm. I like offered you know little bits of food and like some photos and you know and just and just being and just you know kind of sitting with this tree. It's you know that's how I settled into my life here in Portland, and I still a tree is in my backyard. It's this beautiful mm-hmm. Japanese maple and. And it's and it still holds that space. Like I, I don't spend as much time, you know, intentionally interacting with this tree as I as I did. Um, but I still look at it, and I I remember that time. And and and, it, and this is the felt experience I have. Like that tree kind of reminded me of like what, literally how to ground and like anyone. And it's and it's okay. Like I am I am upset, and life doesn't feel good right now. But through this exchange, I was able to kind of organize the chaos that I was experiencing and settle mm-hmm. and calm and and then be able to move through it i love that that's <laughs> precisely the kind of anecdote i was really hoping that you would share especially you know i mean trees and plants are obviously really important to me and they're i think they're important for us to transform our relationships with, you know, to really perceive their beingness and relate to them. It's that relationality that I think is so phenomenally valuable in, you know, and it's something that just like our human relationships are codified through ritual in many ways, like, you know, the please and thank you sort of thing. Um, Having some sort of a ritual form or some, even like you said, even if it's not a specific, like a ritual you'd find in a text somewhere and you're following all the procedures and doing it in this very sort of formal way, uh, having that kind of mentality, that kind of approach, knowing that we can use ritual means and ceremony in these kinds of ways, it it creates certain affordances, certain possibilities for action, possibilities for engagement that might otherwise not occur to us because we don't have the the paradigm of sort of thinking about things in that way. So it gives you the space to to open up a relationship with the tree, Mm -hmm. to actually be able to engage with the non-humans that we share the world with and other humans um, in a way that can be deeply meaningful and transformative, both for ourselves, but also ultimately for those beings. Because if we're relating to them as others, if we're developing a sort of rapport with them and relating to their beingness and their personhood, then we will naturally treat them better than we would if we're just thinking of them as inert objects or as resources. Uh, so that's really, I mean, that's an aspect of ritual that I think for everyone getting, you know, quite outside of the, the 
you know, the mixing up of, of ritual and dogma, because I don't think it needs to be, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think for anyone, ritual and ceremony, whether you're, you know, a Buddhist, a Christian, a Muslim, a, an, an atheist, a complete secularist, you know, there's all kinds of applications of ritual that can be really deeply meaningful and, and fulfilling in, in our lives. Just like myth is something that everyone can engage with. You don't have to have, believe in the historical veracity of a myth in order to be deeply moved by it and have your life impacted by it. So it's, it's you know, I, I think the ritual gives us the means to be able to engage in the more than human world in ways that we might not otherwise think to do, um, which was brings me to, you know, an, a, a point in Buddhist ritual that, you know, I know that we both have experience in. There's this sort of this idea that a lot of folks have of like a hierarchy of, of, you know, religious rituals or Buddhist rituals, especially there's the ones, the very, you know, elevated rituals that are designed to like give you magical powers or let you, you know, go to some pure land or become enlightened or, you know, uh, have the, a deity sort of combine with you in, in certain ways. There's all of those sort of elevated, um, you know, sort of soteriological transcendent rituals. And then there's the mundane rituals that often get, you know, thrown to the side as these like cultural rituals or they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of the auxiliary practices. There's all kinds of sort of pejorative ways that they're described. Um, but these are in fact rituals that are really centered around our human engagement with non-human spirits that inhabit the world or non-human beings that are a part of the world. They're not Buddhism bodhisattvas. They're not, you know, some kind of deities that are this sort of, you know, archetype of liberation. They're, they're other sentient beings that we're in relationship with. I think, you know, the most obvious example is like Naga Pujas. Yeah, uh, I was just you know, that's there are there are kin there are chums there you know there are they're here they're here you know they're the folks that we we share some of the folks that we share the earth with and these rituals are an opportunity to you know invite them to be present to make offerings to them to maybe offer them medicine to apologize to them to ask them for permission uh for using spaces in certain ways you know these are very fundamentally relational sort of communal practices that aren't just about, you know, transcending samsara or attaining liberation or becoming a Buddha or getting magical powers. It's about relationship. And I've always found those kinds of practices really absolutely crucial for the modern world, uh, regardless of, because it's not really about the dogma. It's about the relationship. It's something, a kind of ritual that's really, I think, accessible and important for everyone in some capacity. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and as, as you were as you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, nagas and you know the protectors that we make offerings to, which you know, were and, and I think you understand Tibetan history much more deeply than I do, but you know, those those protectors were like like the spirits of the land. You know, they were they were the 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 beings that you know people living on the plateau were perceiving because you know the landscape is so intense and the weather is so wild and the resources are so scarce that they, there was this animism in the land. And and from that, and this is where you know I, I don't know what exactly that transition was, but you know, but these are beings that are inhabiting this landscape, and we make offerings to them to, like, help you know, in in protectors' practice, it's to you know restore the oath of you know protecting the Dharma and protecting the practitioner. But I think there's on the more mundane side, it's it's to to make offerings to these these beings that are inhabiting this landscape that is is dangerous and and can kill you very quickly 
and and by being in relationship with it and having an understanding you know, or at least as far as we are able to with our our human cognition hmm. um you know understand you know what it what is here and and again to be in relationship with it instead of you know being afraid of it or trying to mm-hmm. destroy it or extract it or yeah. to just let it be on you know on on its own um yeah and, and then thinking about nagas and of course living at taramandla you know 7,500 feet on in Colorado. You know, it's a very high, dry place. And if if you know Charmondel, you know that water issues have been, <laughs> yeah. you know, historical. It's 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 challenge. It's a challenging place to to find water and to support um, the number of people that Charmondela does. And I I spent years. Um, well, I spent years without water at Tarmacola. <laughs> you know, we were taking showers in town and doing our laundry at the laundromat, and uh, you know, that that was a whole era. Um, and then I spent years, you know, bringing bringing things to do Rio Sangcha and Nagapuja down, you know, wherever we were digging a well, or you know, where the spring was coming up, or um, they, uh, like, yeah, like like spring water, you know, was coming was coming up. Um, and yeah, and, and I loved it. And it's like, wow, I, I get to be the person who is is showing up for these nagas mm. that, you know, they're, they're here. Like, and, and I really believe that, like, you know, they're here whether we acknowledge them or not. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and, and so by being able to, to do practice for them and make offerings, it's, it's to be in relationship with the land and the other beings who are inhabiting this place that we are also inhabiting. Mm. And and to recognize that we are we are using their resources, yeah. you know that you know the nagas are the, the water spirits and the land spirits, and and we need this water so that we can live, mm. also, and and that and you know obviously humans are a little more you know powerful than other other creatures in that you know we can take that water for ourselves, mm. you know we we have that ability to extract that resource so that we can live. But really, it, it is an inherently shared resource. Mm-hmm. You know, the you know the, the land needs it. Other animals need it. Um, there are so many stories of, um, you know, as you know, you know there, there are those two retreat cabins down below the spring, and there are many stories of people walking back and forth yeah. from those cabins, encountering animals yeah. who are coming to the spring to get water in this dry, arid environment, and and that's that's very real. Like we are we are sharing this resource with many many beings and and creatures. Um, again, we have the ability to take a larger share of it because that's that's just what what we're doing. And so then to to get to be in relationship with it and acknowledge those other beings always felt very important to me and and important to every you know most people who are doing Naga Puja on the land. You know, we, we've done Naga Puja on the land um, you know for, for as long as I've I've known Tarmandal. It, it's still you know we, we practice on the Naga days. Yeah. Um, you know, these practices are still held even though I don't live on the land, of course. Um, and I, I just think it's important. It's important to acknowledge these beings, to, to make offerings, to, to acknowledge their presence mm. and, and, and to request, you know, we, a lot of what we do in Agha Puja is, is to, to make requests. And, and again, I mean, that's, that's an important piece that, you know, this is not just a thing for us to extract and use to make our lives better as people. Mm. But to to make the request of of those beings that are inhabiting the land, and and acknowledge what is happening here yeah. in this exchange. Yeah. And and again, and and then to do it through the felt lived experience. You know, in Naga Puja, we offer flowers and milk in a large circium, which is like a large offering vessel, and 
and, and we recite prayers mm. and we, you know, we, we make aspirations and we, we don't, we don't stank them per se, you know, quite so literally, but it's, um, yeah, I think you, you, you understand, you know, it's, it's acknowledging, it's acknowledging the exchange mm. and, and making an offering before we take what we need for, for our human lives. Hmm. Yeah. I, and I think it, I think it's important to note that there are many cases also where request can not be, you know, a, a mm -hmm. request denied, you know, it's, it creates this sort of reciprocity, especially in, in, in contexts in which there are folks that are really sort of specializing in holding those relationships with the non-human beings, with the unseen beings that we share space with. Um, because there are certainly cases where, you know, a, a, some kind of a development project will not go through specifically because the land and the beings that inhabited have made it very clear that it shouldn't go through that, you know, the authorization has not been granted. Um, they're admittedly rare because there are, you know, uh, even, you know, like you mentioned, there are a lot of cases still where you just kind of, it's more of a token as opposed to a genuine ask um, and then sort of wait for a response. But that's not always the case. There are, there, you know, I think there have been cases even at Taramandala where certain development projects haven't gone through strictly mm -hmm. because there is a sort of understanding, there's a concern for the impact of certain projects or certain, you know, behaviors on non-human beings. And of course, in modern times, in a sort of secularized instrumentalist world, we use um, the term sustainability to sort of navigate that, think like, oh, that's not a sustainable use of resources. But this really goes a step beyond that because sustainability is a bit problematic because it's just about whether or not we can sustain exploitation. Uh, and as long as you can sustain it, then it's fine, exploit away, which I think is really messed up. Uh, but with this sort of relational paradigm, it's quite different. You know, it's like, maybe it could go ahead and it could, you know, something could be built, uh, but it would harm other beings or it would be a, a transgression against their rights uh, and, you know, their, the, the values uh, that, you know, the value of their existence uh, or their right to land, their right to their own resources, which I think is is really important. And that that asking for permission, I mean, we even do that at the Drupchen. You know, one of my mm -hmm. favorite moments the Drup Chen, uh, which is a moment, usually it's just a small group of us that do it. Um, and it's sort of a last minute, like, oh, we need to do the Sala. <laughs> and, you know, always. Like, <laughs> but it's, you know, before everything really gets started, you go out and you ask the goddess of the earth, Saif Lamo, for permission to do the practice in that space and you know like you you even visualize her coming up out of the ground you know up to her waist and she receives the offerings and that is a very standard part of especially you know tibetan rituals uh before the temple was built you know yeah. we did the same thing there was there's a whole you know astrological and geomantic sort of calculation that's done to figure out where the sadak is laying the earth owner's spirit is sort of positioned in the ground yeah. and then you make sure that you're not harming them and you give them an offering of a treasure vase in a specific place and you try not to harm their body because it's understood that it's not that there's a spirit that lives in the ground. It's that the ground is the body of the spirit. And those kinds of rituals, I just think they're so phenomenally valuable because they completely change our mentality, uh, going about things and developing and building things and taking so-called resources. 
and exploiting, <laughs> you know, non-humans, uh, it completely changes the dynamic. They're no longer passive objects that can be exploited. They're subjective others with whom we're in relationship. And there's really a need for a, a two-way street there. There is a degree of reciprocity. There's a degree of conscientiousness. And there are certainly times where human desires uh, are superseded by the rights mm -hmm. of non-human others. And that's, I think, really essential. Yeah, yeah, I, I was there when we we, we drew the Naga at, at the time. Yeah. Well, well, first, you know, the, Lama Solchum and Dave and many others, you know, offered you know, Riva Songcha Naga Puja at the temple site for you know, months, if not years, yeah. and 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 um, you know, and, and all all the buildings at Taramandala have have gone through that process. You know, there every you know home that was built, um, the temple the stupa. Um, the cremation stupa we just built for Lama Wangdu, you know, they that that is a practice that is engaged in first is you know, making offerings to the Nagas. And mm -hmm. and I remember I was I was twenty two and or maybe twenty even when we did that. And so I was so new and I remember just like thinking like, oh my gosh, like we're you know, we're you know, because we drew out the Naga, you know, Sana Grimpache came and, and he is he is a you know ritual expert with with these things. And you know, he like figured out, you know, where the Naga was and then how large she was. And then, and then we drew, we actually painted on the ground, the form of the Naga. And then the treasure base is buried under her armpit. And it's this, yeah. And so you, you can think of it as like, oh my God, it's, it's like so specific. And like, it's, it's basically you know, math calculations, yeah. you know, according to, you know, astrology and the ground and the yeah. you know, geomancy of the land. But, but it's too to like identify where this nog is, you know, where is she laying? And I just remember thinking at the time, like, whoa, like this is, this is wild. <laughs> like, yeah. like, what are we doing? Like, oh, this is cool. And yeah, but then we do that for, for every Jupiter and we do it for every fire puja, you mm -hmm. know, for every, every time we offer the fire puja, there's a request to the deity of, of, of that, of that location to ask permission before we engage in this activity. And yeah, I, I think about this because you know we as humans like are you know have a lot of presumption of like you know we're going to do the fire puja, <laughs> right, you know, right. we're, we're we're doing the fire puja like it's happening at eight a.m. tomorrow. It's on the schedule. <laughs> but, but it, it's on the schedule. It's been printed. We don't want to reprint. <laughs> you know, it is happening. But to to take that extra step, yeah, to to acknowledge to acknowledge and make an offering and request is is still incredibly important i remember once I, I made a mistake and i started i was trying to be very efficient and i started um actually building the fire before we had done the sala like i was i started like laying out wood and um i was you know i was trying to be you know efficient and it was near the end of the drip chen so things were you know in disarray and people are tired and i was trying to be strategic and yeah but again i started um kind of preparing the the place a little bit and kampo urgan said don't don't do that yet we have not, we haven't done the sala. Mm -hmm. You can't prepare until you actually ask permission. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I appreciated that perspective from him so much of like, of like, this is real. It's not just like a cursory thing we do of like, okay, we're going to get everything set up. And then, and then we're going to offer to the, you know, sala and, and then you don't carry on. It's like, no, it's, we have to do that first yeah. before we do anything else. Like being, you know, efficient or strategic or, you know, your human planning, you know, is irrelevant because this, this must happen first. Right. And it was, it was a good reminder. And, and yeah, again, he's, he's a very precise teacher and he wanted to make sure I understood, you know, why we do these things and, and in what order we do these things. And 
I'm I'm forever grateful that he 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 taught me with that level of specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, I I I love that story as well. It just really drives home for me this concern that I have. You know, as someone who has very much my own approach to my spiritual life, I you know I I was once far more. Um, sort of pious and by the book. And today I'm quite not that <laughs> in really any respect anymore. But, but um, you know, when we talk about religious ritual, when you talk about Buddhist ritual, and with that mentality that I think is very pervasive of this separation between like the real important stuff, the important rituals, the important practices, which are designed to get you, the practitioner, liberated and get you to a pure land with magical powers so you can liberate everyone with your rainbow body, etc. Um, which is very, it's very religious in a lot of ways, very, you know, transcendent in its approach. And then this tendency to really view these kinds of mundane rituals on a completely different level. And we kind of place them on this hierarchy of like the the profound rituals and the mundane rituals. Mm-hmm. And terminology yeah. like that is even used traditionally. But I think it's especially used in a in a sort of, you know, contemporary context. And I just find that very concerning because it's specifically in the bowels of the Anthropocene when the you know number one challenge that we are facing as a global community at the moment is some of humanity's utter contempt and disregard for non-human beings in the environment. You know, we are orchestrating the sixth mass extinction. We are, you know, contributing massively to global carbon emissions, global warming, melting ice caps, uh, you know, aridification, uh, I mean, there's so many different dimensions to it, but that simple act, those simple mundane rituals of renegotiating our relationships with the environment, asking for permission, you know, sort of solidifying as a community, the fact that we are in relationship with the land, we are not able to just completely dominate it and control it with absolute disregard for the welfare of others. Those little details that we think of as being mundane or cultural or superstitious or whatever, those are the very means of recovery for us. That's how we can actually start to find our way out of this, you know, immensely dark moment in human history. And I'm very concerned that in our quest for, you know, sort of profound spirituality and, you know, liberation, that we're completely missing this opportunity that has always been an essential part of the tradition, but is now just for the first time starting to be sort of taken away from it and thrown to the side. You know, it's that that baby in the bathwater sort of conundrum. This is, if there is any bathwater, this is not the bathwater. You know, these sort of, uh, these components of ritual and ceremony and practice, I think are absolutely essential for people, probably more today than ever before, because these are the very same pieces that we are completely missing in so-called Western society. We've scrubbed ourselves of them. You know, in the the development of an anthropocentric world where humans are the, the stars of the show and the lords of all, we've completely abandoned any sense of reciprocity, any sense of relationship. So, I mean, I really hope that that can change. I hope that more people feel drawn to those, that dimension of practice and those, you know, little moments of relationship and natural enchantment, because I I think that's an important piece of our recovery. 
Yeah, I think you make this point. Well, I know you make this point in the book because I read it multiple times. <laughs> but that humans are not separate from nature. That, yeah, right. that it is not as though like humans exist and the natural world exists and we extract from nature or we can be in relationship with nature or that like we we are like humans are are mammals who are very dominant on the planet of course but but humans are not separate from nature and and I I really sat with that for a while when I read it in your book of like yeah humans are not separate from nature but we we think we are that you know nature is this place is a place that we go to to find ourselves or to mm-hmm. be in beauty or to um, you know have you know whatever whatever it is it's a place you go to you know get wood for lumber you know you get water you know you, all, all these resources that we need and I really sat with the idea that humans are not separate from nature but we perceive ourselves as being separate from nature. And so Bo, like, mm-hmm. what are the implications of that? Which you espouse on at length in your book. <laughs> I, think, I think there's chapters dedicated to this. Um, but then how do, we, how do we rebuild that? You know, how do we understand our union with nature through the path of relationship and engagement? And, and like you say, you know, how do we recover? Like, how do, how do we recover the sense of ourselves as an aspect of nature that, that has actually mm-hmm. never been separate? Yeah. It sounds yeah. so Buddhist. <laughs> you know, that's also <laughs> all these profound, because these are kinds of things you hear from, from you know, Buddhist teachings and, and texts all the time is this, you know, sort of concept of, of separation from our true nature. And, you know, we've never been separate from it, but we think that we have been. And it's about recognizing that we've never been separate. But it's quite interesting because even this word nature, you know, the idea of an outer natural world, that's a strictly Western Enlightenment era idea. That word nature doesn't actually exist in in any other cultural and linguistic tradition in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some somewhat equivalent notions, but not in Sanskrit, not in not in Tibetan. Uh, there's words that we translate as nature from those languages, but it's the nature of something. It's not the nature out nature there. Nature. The yeah, that's a very distinct enigmatic idea. And I think that's part of our problem is that we think that there's like humanity on one side, human culture over here and non-human nature over here. And it's about how we human culture people relate with the non-human nature resources. And that's not at all what you find in 99.9% of cultural traditions that have existed throughout our human history. It's always been more complex. And these sort sorts of ritual paradigms and these sorts of mythic paradigms as well, using myth not in a pejorative sense, but in a sense of stories about something important. Um, they really point to that. You know, it's like when you if you look out onto a, a landscape where there isn't a single human being and potentially not even a single animal that you can see. From a Tibetan perspective, just like the vast majority of traditional non-Western, non-modern, pre-modern perspectives, it's not an empty stage. You know, it's not a, 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 a location that's devoid of beings. It's already a community. That's that's what the, the land is. That's what the world is, whether it's a community of of trees and tree spirits or, or you know, river gods or mountain gods or nagas and yakshas and and the nyen and the ten and the mamos and the, the, the fla and all of these different kinds of beings. It's already a community and we are part of that community. But I think that's really, you know, 
precisely the point. It's like there, if there is any such thing as nature that we're going to talk about, it is not separate from humanity at all. We are an expression of the very same thing. And I think it's more useful as opposed to thinking of nature as a place. It's really perceiving it, uh, it as a community, you know, that we are all in this massive community of persons, very few of whom are, are human. Uh, we're just one of the kinds of persons that appear in it. And that's something that I think you you get when you do these kinds of ritual procedures and when you engage in these kinds of stories and practices, it becomes very evident. You know, it's like like Tulkasank and the Lamas looking at the the place where the temple was going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this is just a, a little bit of land that eventually had been, you know, flattened and it's this little flat bit of land. But, you know, the plants had been cleared away, trees had been cleared away. It's just this land. And yet, even then, it's still a community. It's still spirited. It's still embodied. It's yeah. still something that we're in relationship with, not a, a thing that can be exploited and used as this like inert resource or object. Uh, so I think that really it's a good way of driving it home, these, these kinds of methods. It, and it does so in a communal way. We share that with one another. You know, we all share this reaffirmation of our commitment to look after the welfare of others and ourselves in community. Because it, likewise, it's not about like, screw humans, let's all, you know, just like self-flagellate ourselves and deprive ourselves of any sort of essential needs and only prioritize the needs of others. We're all a part of it. We all have to get along and work together for our mutual welfare, which is, I think, the, the real point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm still, yeah, resonating on, on what you said initially of, you know, nature as an external thing versus the nature of something. Mm. And it's, that's, that's a very profound difference. It's like, it's like that little qualifier of, you know, of yeah. nature of instead of nature is, yeah. yeah, again, you know, it enables, like you were just saying, it enables us to be in relationship with, with something, mm. you know, it's not an external state. And yeah, that, that's my, that's like, like my, like when I'm, you know, trying to, to put into the world through, through practicing, you know, learning, practicing, and then teaching ritual arts is that this is a path of embodiment of the, you know, the path of relationship. And, and even if the exact thing we're doing, you know, feels a little abstract or, you know, maybe it's like ultra Tibetan and like, why are we doing this? Or why is it important? You know, there's, I think, you know, everyone can, like, you can do it or not, you know, there's no mm -hmm. like rule book or like you have to do this to get there it's 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 one of the you know, hundred thousand ways you know to mm -hmm. enlightenment and um yeah maybe that's the mm -hmm. I, I, yeah I, I don't know i don't have a larger point other than like that that is the path <laughs> that mm -hmm. is the, yeah. i think that's what we're trying to to do as mm -hmm. as people and again, we mm -hmm. do this sometimes through, like, you know, this is what we, we've been talking about. We do this sometimes through very formal ritual. We do it through informal ritual. Um, but I think, you know, acknowledging, acknowledging these, these things that are occupying the world along with us, building a relationship with them, and then using that to understand our human experience, our emotional experience, our, our shared experiences, it's, it's just important and worth, it's worth our time mm -hmm. <laughs> to do it well. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's absolutely agreed. So, I, I mean, this has been this has been fantastic. I think we could we could go on. Obviously, it's us, and we usually do go on for for many hours. <laughs> I think we this is already hour three of our conversation. Only this one hour, which was yeah, recorded. <laughs> Precisely. Um, 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, maybe just to, to sort of give folks some more information about how to access you and your work, because um, you're teaching a course uh, yeah. this summer at Taramandala on ritual arts. So folks that are interested in diving a bit more into that on the land in Colorado, which is really, yeah. I mean, it is an incredible place. Uh, there is an opportunity to do that. Uh, but also, I'm, I'm curious, you know, can you share a little bit about your work as an uh, emotional intelligence coach and, and you know, the work that you're doing with Beyond DI? Um, I'm particularly interested because, you know, you you work with, you know, mindfulness and helping individuals and organizations sort of relate to this idea. Uh, I'd love to hear how you approach that, um, but also any thoughts that you might have about, you know, sort of that that separation of mindfulness from ethics, that separation, the sort of isolation of mindfulness as the point in and of itself, which I think, you know, the mindfulness sort of thing, mm -hmm. oh. uh, which there's been a lot of critique of for, I think, really good reason. I think you'd agree with that. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what sort of your approach is to that and how you're helping to go beyond uh, that sort of reduction of everything to just being more mindful and productive uh, as opposed to mindful and disruptive or, you know, <laughs> more uh, engaged in these kinds of dynamic ways. Oh, yeah, totally. I I have a wonderful soapbox that I love getting on about mindfulness. Get on it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but to your first point, yes, I am teaching a course in May at Charmandala. Um, it's a Chupin and Umze retreat. So we will be going in depth um, with all of these things that we've been discussing you know, here and over the last hour. Um, and that's really a time to, if, if any of this has piqued your interest and you want to learn the ritual arts of the green Tara Sadhana and Riwa Songchu and uh, Sok, you know, the feast offering, uh, we will be going in depth and really getting into the minutia of of those, you know, both how to uh, enact the ritual and how to, um, uh, like, you know, lead the practice vocally to you know, be the chant leader and um, play the instruments. Um, so that that is like kind of going all the way down the rabbit hole <laughs> of what we've been talking about. Um, I'm also beginning to write an online course, like a self-paced online course, to really just hold a lot of this information. So, um, and again, it, it's fairly specific to Tar Mandala's practices. Um, but I'm hoping to create that as a resource for, for anyone who's interested. Um, yeah. And then my, my work as an emotional intelligence coach. Um, yeah. It, it's again, it, it's like the other side of this for me. It's like, you know, to me, it all feels very aligned. Um, it's just, it's a different methodology. Um, so taking it out of a religious um, Buddhist context and into the more, you know, very secular world of um, you know, emotional intelligence has gotten a lot of, uh, um, you know, it's, it's on people's radar in a different way after you know, Dan Goldman published the, the, the literal tome of you know, emotional <laughs> intelligence. I think that was in 1994 in um, understanding emotional intelligence as a, a field of study and practice and, and as a set of skills that we can coach um, ourselves or others and, and develop them. Um, yeah. And then thinking about, you know, the kind of the, the mindfulness wave that has swept, swept the West. And I, I, I've gone back and forth on it a lot of, you know, is this good? Is this bad? You know, have we just commercialized kind of secular Buddhism because it makes us feel good, but like it can't be too Buddhist or religious because I know one will pay attention to it. Um, but also I, I think, I think really where I've, I've settled in, in it. Um, well, actually the other thing I'll say about mindfulness is that I think it, it became very popular in, in the business context, of course. Um, yeah. you know, business and emotional intelligence kind of um, 
or mindfulness and, and emotional intelligence for like better business performance or like building team rapport or, you know, employee retention, um, kind of these very capitalistic ideas. And then like, oh, we're going like, to use mindfulness to like make the workplace better and keep people longer and make them happier. So they're more productive. Um, and my, my big, my big like gripe with that is, is putting the, the onus of toxic workplace cultures or just the problems of capitalism onto the singular human experience of like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, like you're unhappy because you're not practicing mindfulness. Really, maybe you're unhappy because you're being exploited <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, you're, you know, you can't work or, or, you know, run your life in such a way that is, um, that is sustainable for you personally, because you have to be at this job for 40 hours a week. You know, many people commute, many people work more than 40 hours a week. Um, so that, that's my like, you know, like mindfulness and emotional intelligence as a, as a tool of capitalism is <laughs> I have feelings about it. Um, and, and I really debated, you know, should I do this work? You know, is this just, am I just, you know, becoming part of the problem? But I, I really think that the net positive benefit of teaching these skills to people, um, you know, outweighs any like, you know, business advantage, you know, edge to it of, um, you know, if people really are happier and if they really are able to develop a greater sense of their lived emotional experience, um, their interpersonal dynamics, um, that that's. A, it, it's a positive impact to put into the world. Um, it, it, it is aligned with my bodhicitta activity and my bodhisattva activity of like, how do we alleviate suffering in the world? Mm. And just by helping people get in touch with their own emotions and develop some sense of self-awareness and um, interpersonal awareness, that, that mm. this is a good thing. This is a good thing to put into the world. And, mm. and that hopefully my, have my, like my wish or aspiration is that as people um, come closer to themselves that they they will be able to make choice other choices that are more aligned with what they need as people like they won't stay in that toxic company you know longer than they need to or or if they have to for any number of reasons that they can find ways to um, you know, make it work for them or to understand you know this is what's happening externally this is what's happening internally and you know to, to feel that difference I think is important. Um, you know, th- that being said, I, I think um, coaching is also just a way to to get this out in a in a much broader, um, kind of faster way. Um, I think therapy is also incredibly important. I think um, you know self exploration is also very important. Um, you know, people's religious backgrounds, you know, whether Buddhist or otherwise, are also a, a very important framing lens for that. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm very grateful to work with many different kinds of uh, therapists and meditation coaches and emotional intelligence coaches. And um, yeah, I think it's all part of uh, kind of this movement that, that I think many of us feel innately of like, how do I be in better relationship with myself and my, my lived environment? Like, I think people really are looking for that. And, and there's many, many, many different avenues to do that work. Um, I've, I've chosen to go deep into the ritual arts kind of vein and then go deep into the emotional intelligence and coaching vein. Um, but again, I think there, there's many, many ways to do it. Um, and it's why, it's why I love, you know, platforms like yours, like, you know, how do like, you know, who are the people out there kind of doing this work and how do we, you know, find each other and support each other? Um, Cause you know, we're all doing it in, in different ways, but I, I do think yeah. it all is you know, rolling up to um, just 
trying to understand ourselves and our human experience in a more profound way. So I, I know it's a very abstract comment to end on. Um, but yeah, I feel like my, my work as an, as an EI coach is, is very aligned with my, my Buddhist work, my ritual arts work. Um, and it's, and it's a way that I can engage with a larger community. So of course, you know, my, my perspective is very influenced by the things I have learned, um, through my Buddhist practice. Um, but then I can bring it into, you know, teams and, you know, the business world and, you know, try to bring some Bodhisattva activity to corporate America <laughs> and, and see, see if it lands. And um, yeah, and, and, and it does people I've, I've only worked with amazing clients um, who, who then also tend to carry on this work. And like, that, that's what I feel like it's all, it's all expanding outwards through our, our collective efforts. Mm. I love that. Well, thank you so much for, for, joining me on the unseen beings podcast it's been really uh yeah it's been wonderful i mean it's always it's always great to to talk to you and to connect um yeah i really appreciate you doing this we'll have to do it again sometime oh my gosh yeah yeah come back you know let me know like a year because i'm sure i'll have some other insight of like oh i didn't know anything a year ago now i know something (laughs) that's good that's good that's what we that's what we should all be doing if you're not doing that constantly until you die you're doing something wrong (laughs) yeah exactly i'm sure i'll I'll have some better anecdotes for you in, in the future thanks again to anna reithel for joining us for this wonderful episode of the unseen beings podcast For more information about the emotional intelligence consulting group that she works with, Beyond EI, you can visit beyondei.inc. And for more information about the Unseen Beings podcast and ways to support us, please check out unseen-beings.com. And you can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ericjampa. I hope you'll join us again soon. There's a new episode next week. But in the meantime, this has been Eric Champa Anderson, your host. Take care.